Welcome to the Human Potential Unleashed podcast, brought to you by Rome, Human Potential Unleashed. Work with a difference. On today's episode, we're joined by CEO and founder of squiz.com and totex.com, work from anywhere and connected commerce advocate and student of life, Glenn Drew. Welcome, Glenn. G'day, mate. How are you going? I'm very good, thank you. I'm pleased to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've had the opportunity to rendezvous here in the town of Moree in the north of the Australian state of New South Wales near the Queensland border. Moree is around 480 kilometres southwest of Brisbane and 630 kilometres northwest of Sydney. Moree is well known for its artesian thermal hot springs and final resting place of the youngest son of author Charles Dickens. Glenn happened to be in transit heading south as we were making our way north to Cooktown in Queensland when we seized the opportunity to take a slight diversion and meet each other in person and talk all things work from anywhere, collaboration, technology and more. Glenn, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what squiz.com and totex.com are and how they've been serving the business community? Yeah, sure. Well, I started by founding our companies. Um, well, the first company I founded was ultimately what is now totex.com. And Totex is a integrated e-commerce platform that enabled wholesalers and retailers to um, effectively get their websites online so they could sell online to their customer base. And when we're talking resellers and distributors, we're talking some pretty big actors. Uh, they got thousands of products, like in the 20s or thousands, um, thousands of customers. Um, and when I started all this work, I learned that B2B e-commerce was this kind of difficult terrain to navigate. And the reason for that, pricing. Um, customers don't pay the same price uh, for every product as you would in a retail e-commerce website. So Totex thrived on uh, bridging the gap, the integration gap between backend business software that holds all of that account related pricing information and stock information and brings it online through really clever, smart, um, easy to navigate websites that do the e-commerce shopping basket ordering workflow. When did you start all this off? So 2000, in 2001, I had a client and I was doing IT and network support while I was studying at Melbourne Uni. So I was studying computer science at uni and in actual fact, I failed second year. And I failed second year and I had to go to there were three three deans, uh, School of Engineering, School of Computer Science, and uh, I think it was School of um, uh, Information Systems. So I had to go and front them, and they asked me, you know, why have you failed second year, expecting probably a very typical, I've partied too much and, you know, really didn't focus and all of that. And I said, well, I don't have time for uni. And they're like, what? And I said, yeah, well, I'm developing this software language that ultimately underpins our an e-commerce software architecture so I can build online stores for these wholesale distribution companies. And look, you know, if you're gonna fail me just, just like that, that's fine. Let's just wrap this meeting up and I don't wanna waste your time. And then they, they gave me 10 minutes pause and I had to come back and sit down. I was kind of waiting for the verdict. <laughs> I was sort of pretty much expecting that was the end of my uni days. And they sat down with me and they said, can you show us what you're doing? And I said, yeah, sure. So I opened my laptop out and I sort of showed them the language I was creating and all of that. And they're like, okay, um, you're not allowed to leave university. We want you to finish, but how can we make it possible for you to finish? And I said, oh, well, 
drop it down to like one subject a semester or like one or two subjects a semester. So it took me another three years to finish um, my course. But then by then I was already building enterprise e-commerce websites and we would we had clients that were doing probably 10 to $15 million of online transactions per month. And this is back around 2001, 2002? 2001 to 2004, yeah. So some pretty early adopter moves there by yourself coming out of the back of the dot-com bubble and like really early on in the e-commerce space. Yeah, I mean, why would you create a tech company in the ashes of the dot-com boom, right? <laughs> and then the dot-com crash that followed it. Um, and really what I saw, I, I mean, I went to a lecture on the, the e-com, it was, it was basically an introduction to e-commerce and what I saw them teaching and what I saw what we were doing in industry, I'm like, well, they were like in utopian world because industry was still working in faxes and basic email and passing docs through those, that level. They were nowhere near the integrated EDI type, you know, advanced workflow that they were teaching which which then showed me that okay there's this huge gap to, to that that there's a huge market for this um so that kind of gave me the impetus to to really do what i did and then um by 2005 one of our biggest clients at the time was transacting 160 million per annum on our platform and they they had um they were in the news agency space and they actually sold the stationery to all the news agencies around the country and um, I had a conversation with their head of national sales and marketing, and he's a guy named Adrian Baker, great guy. And he he said to me, "Look, Glenn, it's only you know it's great. The online stuff is great, but it's there's still forty percent of our business that's still fax, mainly fax and email ordering." And I said, "Well, why why is that the case?" And he goes, "Well, all of these um, all of these news agencies or, or commercial actors had their own systems and it was easier for them to raise a purchase order and then fax or email it through. And so then he took me downstairs, I think, and there was this room full of, I don't know, must be 30 to 60 people just keying in orders. And then he took me into another room and there was, there was 24 fax machines just running hot. Oh, wow. The whole time, whole way through. And I said, okay, right. Um, and so... I, I sort of thought about this problem and I said, okay, well, why can't we link their systems to your systems? And they said, well, that's what we'd love to achieve. And then I thought, okay, well, let's just do a straw poll of what sort of systems and platforms they're all using. So we sort of did a big, big survey and we found out what, you know, everything from Myob to point of sale software to bespoke stuff, some, some of them spreadsheets. And I thought, okay, well, there's two ways we can go about this. We could directly link these systems together or we could... Um, or we could create a really sm much smarter system where any party could bolt their ERP or accounting or business system into a common framework. And inside that common framework, they could then go and establish their own trading relationships electronically with other parties. And so this got rid of a lot of quagmire in, in what was known, already known then as the EDI space, which, which is basically directly coupling systems together to make make document exchange possible. So we thought, well, there might there must be a way to create a universal platform. And then if we could do that, then we can actually do really smart stuff like search for products across entire industries and through connected relationships. And so that kind of was the uh, that was the start of the idea of what squeeze.com become. Fantastic. 
But it doesn't yeah. seem like that long ago that that was the norm and probably for a lot of our listeners out there wouldn't have even seen a fax machine or know what one is, which, <laughs> which is scary enough. Def- you know. Yeah, definitely not the, the 20-year-olds out there. Although I, I know fax is actually still quite quite often utilised in the medical industry because there's, there's still x-rays and reports being faxed around. It's quite fascinating. It's because those systems don't interlink. Mm, and reliability. Mm. Now, Glenn, recently you've been travelling the east coast of Australia and working from your mobile office um, that we're now recording the show in today. Uh, That's also known as your caravan. (laughs) Um, You've been visiting clients, engaging with local communities and embracing the work from anywhere lifestyle. Can you tell me what a typical day looks like for you at the moment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I've undergone quite a personal journey as well and a spiritual journey in the last three years. So it's been that that's now integrated into my lifestyle. So, uh, but the first, I guess the whole objective for the approach to caravanning is, I guess, to explain where I came from and that kind of then we can break out by day. So where I came from was in during, definitely in the 2000s and most of the teens, I would fly in and fly out. I would fly in, have lots of meetings, back to back, run around, like hire, hire cars, run around and come back. And I'd be absolutely like really exhausted after two days of doing that or three days. And then it was really hard to actually keep up and follow up on things and make sure that, you know, I, I could actually give it the right attention. And so sort of hit a, hit a kind of hit a, a major stumbling block um, on this whole model because in 2012, myself and um, my partner at the time, we wanted to travel the world. So I wanted to go to Europe and, and do a six and a half month trip as a CEO. How, how is that even possible? Um, so I wanted to sort of break out of this whole FIFO model and chain to the desk kind of model and get out in the world and start exploring doing things. And that was the impetus to this whole philosophy of, well, if I can work overseas and harness tech, you know, because we could already work online, we could already do some great things using online tools even back in 2012 then well I can just prove and demonstrate that it's it's possible to not be chained to the desk so then I came back from that and started then altering how I did my work and I would very much um you know change the mod modus operandi from having to fly in and do the the meetings back to back for three days and I wanted I wanted to slow it down I want to have much better quality time with each client as I, or each sort of partner client, whoever I met, and have a great experience, but also then have the time to follow up and, and also um, have more time in their space because actually when you're in their space, more people come and talk to you and you start unraveling bigger issues or bigger challenges or bigger opportunities. So that was kind of the ethos. And then in 2016, um, uh, we had a son. We had our son and then we also bought a rural property. And so we did the whole city change to tree change. And that was, again, another major hurdle and step to step out of going to the office or being in the office. In fact, back then we lived in our office. We had a three-story townhouse in West Melbourne. So we, 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 we kept the office going in West Melbourne, but then we moved to the farm. And then it was this, okay, well, how do we adapt to that? And then I was commuting in and out four days of the week to the office in, in West Melbourne. And then COVID came 
and COVID basic, I saw the, I saw the writing on the wall immediately. I'm like, this, this pandemic is going to be a dragged out, elongated process. There's going to be all sorts of nonsense. Keeping an office going was, was fruitless as far as I could see, but we had already set up all of the infrastructure and our IT services and our phone systems and everything to work remotely. And we were already harnessing Zoom. So it was actually literally a switch off. Let's just vacate the office. Uh, it was leased, so we could just break the lease. Oh, I think we just ended our lease. And uh, that was the best decision I ever made because by, by having a, a facility there that's literally largely empty, what it proved though by doing this is actually there wasn't much transition required. Everyone actually adapted to work from home really easily because of the, the field we're in. And then we had all the tech all set up and we were using it. And so it was just a natural transition. So then living and working on the farm without the travel, because basically the pandemic made, made travel really difficult. Then we had to work out how to have the introduction meetings with clients. We had to work out how to, how to sort of overcome all the physical barriers and just get things done. And really uh, that became the new modus operandi. And then, so how my day works now is that we, and, and really th these are structures we implemented back then, but I, I do, I wake up around seven, maybe sometimes earlier, 6.30, I have a morning meditation. So I kind of lie there for about half an hour and just sort of get in my Zen zone. And that's kind of when I, sometimes I come up with some of the most awesome ideas in that time. And then I have breakfast from eight to nine. Often I go to a cafe or something if I'm out and about, particularly working anywhere, I can go try out all the cafes in town. It's definitely an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I meet a lot of people in that hour from eight to nine because there's lots of other people sort of getting up, gearing up for the day. And then my day kind of really kicks in with the team at nine. So we, we have a, a half an hour, 30 minute, what we call scrum meeting. And that's the whole team come online. And we just actually talk about current issues, current challenges, current um, topics of interest. So it's kind of a literally, you know, fireside chat. And we have some of the most amazing, in fact, I wish I record so many of them because we have just so many great, fabulous and fun chats and discussions. So um, then what happens on certain days of the week, I have structures. So on, on Monday at one o'clock, we have accounts meeting. We run a company uh, sprint cycle. So we run against lean principles and we also run against agile, agile workflow, but it's a whole of company approach. So the whole company is developing the company on a two week sprint cycle. So on the Tuesday of every two weeks, we come together for a leaders meeting, all the leaders across the business. We look at our strategies in action. We propose any new strategies. All the leaders themselves can propose whatever they think we should work on. And then those strategies have to go then through seven phases of the entire strategic cycle. So the, the leaders meeting is, is, a, is an hour long meeting. It's very punchy. We get through a lot of content and then we set up the next sprint and the next sprint starts on the Thursday. So there's a, there's a sprint meeting on the Thursday and then we get to that. So basically my day is a nine o'clock meeting. I have my leaders meeting on the Tuesday every two weeks. I have the sprint meeting every two weeks. And then we scatter other things as needed. Um, and we basically we set up in that first half hour meeting just the day. And there's other things that might come up or things that I need to know about or whatever. And then I plan my traveling around that. So as I'm traveling from city to city or whatever, I can then just work out, well, I could probably just travel for two hours before the next meeting. And the advantage of having my mobile office with me, just literally pull off on the side of the road and get in and do whatever I need to do. So prior to COVID, 
the seed had already been sown in your mind about the benefits or at least your desire to work from anywhere. Yeah. And obviously the global pandemic forced the hand of a lot of people. Yeah. Prior to that, was everybody still turning up to the office, doing the daily commute and maybe the same structure that you've got with your days at the moment being done in person? Have you seen any loss in value or collaboration with any of the work you're doing now with your team being distributed everywhere? Nah, opposite. Like a complete expansion of performance across the business. Um, right from we're far more intentional in our meetings. Um, when you take out a two-hour commute process, you know, particularly for those who have children, they've got to get them up, get them, get them going, get them to school. And then at the end of, you know, the middle of the end of the day, they got to get them back from school. You know, coming to the office then meant that people were really constrained to from 10 o'clock to, to 2.30. And I'm very passionate about the inclusiveness of, you know, um, some, some of the parents in the, in, the, in the company to have that family um, time with their children to be able to drop them off at school, pick them up and check in with them, see how their day went. So... Um, the performance elevated because we use our squeeze platform to operate on. I mean, we, we kind of built it for ourselves as well. We built it for the world, but we, we, we basically have our own ticket management system. We have our workflow management system. We have everything sort of built into squeeze. So, so, so now the governor of the company is, it, is the actual alignment to the tasks that we set through our strategic processes and through our sprint cycle. So if someone needs to get something done and it's coming up to end a sprint on the Wednesday night, they might then say, look, I'll pick up the kids. I'll be off air for three, two hours or three hours from three o'clock to six o'clock. Fine. And then at, you know, at seven o'clock, they'll come on and they'll work for a couple of hours and get whatever they need to get done for the next day. As far as I'm concerned, that's fabulous. And then they don't have to factor in all the logistics of a commute to generally a place like your workplace, which is maybe an hour, half an hour from wherever home is, wherever the kids are. So normally home is close to kids. So in actual fact, you, you shrink down the impact on their life because it's not such a dramatic logistics exercise for them. It's just, oh, we'll drive around the corner, go pick them up from school, bring them back. They, then I can get back into carrying on with what I'm doing. So I think the key to that is intentional and purposeful connection with people and obviously maintaining some structure in what you're doing. How have you seen or even felt for yourself mental well-being and mental health play out at the back of the, the pandemic? So obviously there was a period of a lot of uncertainty for many people and, yep. and a lot of high pressure during, like, due to the unknowns. As that's settled down now and you've gotten into a rhythm of people working from anywhere, what, what's, what have you seen and observed in your team's performance and mental well-being but also your own with having that different structure and eliminating an unnecessary commute? Oh, well, first of all, everyone is far more engaged, which sounds counterintuitive, but they're, they're a lot more um, at ease with themselves and their life because there's this integrated workflow or work-orientated lifestyle. We, we had a, we had a, literally we had this conversation with the team probably towards the latter stages of the pandemic as a reflection of asking these questions and hands down, everyone loved this new mode of operandi. And in general, across the team, people seem to be empowered. They 
loved the flexibility. They loved the, um, they loved that any issue that came up for them in their personal world could be managed better. Mm-hmm. And so that then made their work better. Um, they were tend to, tended to be more relaxed. Now, right at the beginning of the pandemic, it was just kind of nearly the opposite. It was like, we're, you know, when you go up the roller coaster and you're about to kind of go over the edge, just from, from February uh, 2020 to about May 2020, there was this like, we're going over the top into the unknown, the abyss. And what we found in every meeting at the nine o'clock meeting, there was a lot of chatter about what's happening next and oh my God, and you know, oh, there's a freak out. There's so many cases here and they've shut down this and this is not working and these are the new rules. And so, and so there, there was all this uh, fear-based chatter that then set up the day and that really seriously impacted people's ability to focus and concentrate because they were so busy watching all the parameters around the pandemic. So what we did by May that year is actually shut out the pandemic conversation from our morning discussions. And that was a very critical thing to do because it took out that the pandemic as being the focal point. Mm -hmm. And it was like, come on guys, we've actually got all the structures in play so we can work effectively. So let's now actually just focus and concentrate on what we can do. And that, that coincided around the time of JobKeeper, which was the necessary reassurance that businesses, you know, even as business leaders that we needed mm-hmm. to know, okay, like this, this cataclysmic sort of massive downfall of cash flow is going to not break the company because we had that cash flow support. So JobKeeper also contributed massively to shifting that focus. Giving some assurance. Yeah. So then after that, um, really, we've sort of just leaped from step to step to the to the work anywhere model. I don't care where our team are. I personally really don't care. But I do care that they just tell us where they are. So I don't mind if a staff member just says, hey, I want to go up to the Gold Coast for a week and work from up there. Great. Go for it. Have fun. Let us know. But enjoy. Do what you want to do. And then make sure that you honor the structures of the company. So yeah, we, it's not just a free for all, but it is a very much a performance driven kind of model that links back to our strategies that drive the activity, not a boss. Yeah. I I think that's probably one of the key things there. So during the start of the pandemic and that transition from people working in the office and being under the eyeball gaze of managers and leaders and bosses wandering yep. around the floor to make sure you know people are there and they're doing their job and they're not chit-chatting. There's There was certainly a period of time where letting go of the reins and still is to this day a challenge for a lot of people. And I think the word trust comes into play there as one of the biggest concerns and barriers for a lot of managers to fully embrace the remote working or work from anywhere post the global pandemic. What would be some of the key learnings that you have observed that would benefit other managers out there in your, your learnings or the benefits or, or obstacles in, in stepping back and letting go of those reins? Because it can be very difficult to have people not present and be seen in an office and go to a fully remote work setup. Well, the general uh, sort of shock of the pandemic for managers was there was no people to police. And all organizations, particularly those that are hierarchically based, 
then had these middle managers that were a bit lost in their jobs because, well, hang on, they're not all here. <laughs> and now to see what they're all doing and interact with them, well, then that was all through online tools and all of that. So then there was this kind of like blinkers coming up. Now, like fortunately for our organization size and probably the nature of our business, it is very high speed. Um, there's a lot of information flow that passes across the business at any point in time. So in other words, our, our effectively our clients and their markets drive us. And so that didn't change. And so those in, in operations, um, you know, as long as they were delivering according to how the business functions, that it was sort of nearly business as usual. Mm -hmm. For the leadership side of the business, having that sprint workflow and that agile mentality and lean type mentality already kind of nearly baked into how we operate, that was the saving grace. That, that ensured that we didn't just have a complete mess on our hands because um, every business has to operate according to its own heartbeat. But when you operate according to command and control structures, like the manager is telling everyone what to do and then the manager is policing everything and getting it all done and it all comes back to the managers, you know, it's all on their head to get it completely through. Um, well, then that is a very big and dramatic transition to go through no oversight on everybody and then having to rely on tech and Zoom and all of that to check in what's going on. Um, the other side of it on the on the work on the on the I guess the employee side is those in operations could feel isolated, hmm. whereas they're not in the office and they don't have that team camaraderie as easily. So it's to ensure that there's structures in place so that they can call that, and that's where Squiz was really powerful, because we can have co encrypted conversations in Squiz. We have issue management in Squiz, so all the collaboration and instant chat is happening in Squiz. People are liking stuff and hacking stuff and disliking stuff. And so the rapid fire communication and collaboration was happening. But if you didn't have something like that, then you're right down to email. And then email then becomes this really clunky tool. It's probably fine in a working environment when you can see and speak to everyone and the chatter can happen like literally through verbal over the air type stuff. But when you hide all of that, then you're relying on email and, oh, I forgot to CC and I, did, oh, I didn't get that email and I missed that last night and, oh, then the kids got COVID and so therefore I dropped the ball on that. And if, if you've got no visibility of that communication and it's all just sitting in people's inboxes and you don't really know whether someone's seen it or acted or something, that would, that would have been just horrible. Do you see the like utilizing the agile methodology as being one of the key factors then for your success, along with the technology that you guys have developed? Um, just having that intentional and purposeful connection on a daily basis, and then having your retrospectives and other sort of um, rhythms that you have within the agile process helped have that communication and collaboration rather than just relying on written word on emails and loss of tone and, and intent. Yeah. Absolutely. If you put, if you, if you get a bunch of kids in a classroom and you, you start at the, in the first five minutes and say, Hey kids, this is the task we're going to do. And, um, you know, here's all the steps we're going to follow. And now I'm going to set, I'm going to hit the buzzer and we're going to say go, right? How does that look after 50 minutes of just from the go mark to the end? It's nearly chaos because the kids are scattered everywhere. They've, they've run into something 
and they've flipped over and then another kid comes in and they're laughing and then they carry on and then they, they go off and do... So then suddenly, where's the focus? So often the teacher is always having to call focus back and bring the kids back to the, the common game. Hey guys, we're doing this task, remember? And what step are you at? Oh, right. Well, in, in, in the working environment, that still happens. Um, we set projects up and we sort of set major deadlines on those projects and then we want the entire team to travel to the end of that project. Um, Agile is a regular heartbeat against the project. So it's that check-in, make sure. Are we, have we, has anything come, come in that's derailed something? And then if you can do it even faster in quicker sprints, then less randomness can sort of enter the space. And so it's a very critical part of how we operate. I think I've definitely seen the benefits of it. And one of the things that people shouldn't get lost in is thinking it's all or nothing with Agile either. And some businesses might be able to adapt and adopt um, key elements of it. You know, maybe that 15 minute daily stand up to set the scene for what needs to be done for the day. And that might be it um, from incorporating Agile methodology into what they do. But that meaningful, purposeful and intentional contact with each other is the key to opening up that communication and making sure that there's still connection with everybody. That's right. And the, the, the thing is, command and control workflow is still part of Agile. That's why we have tickets, because tickets limit the scope of what gets done, and you have to. And sometimes we get so focused on what tickets do we achieve in the two-week sprint cycle than what actually got achieved in the sprint cycle. So sometimes the Agile can limit your boundaries to focusing on uh, tick boxes, you know the status. Oh, we only we only want to acknowledge the the statuses where everything got done, but in actual fact, maybe some of those other actions or things, those tasks that weren't done, have actually had some brilliant development and progression. But when we get to the end of it, we have to acknowledge everything that was achieved, even if the tickets themselves aren't closed off, and that's good because it's also a reset to go okay great, we've actually achieved a lot here. And now let's plan ahead and go again into the next sprint. And let's just try and get better at our management of trying to set tasks that we think we can realistically get done in that two-week cycle. You never get it right. And, and that's the first thing is to acknowledge it from a leadership perspective. It doesn't work like McDonald's. It would, it would be great, but it's, McDonald's is a, is a trained machine to get the burgers out and the everything exactly to spec. But that's because there's no allowance of randomness coming into the process. So you don't have the staff thinking about the process as much, but they're following the rules. So in most businesses, it's not, it don't, can't function like McDonald's, but still, you still can have agile workflow covering 80% of the organization quality of, of what gets done and deal with the randomness just through acknowledging what didn't get done. So do you see that as being the key difference then between decoupling from a, uh, an outdated way of thinking of presenteeism and just sitting in front of a desk for a set period of time, eight hours, or you know, doing a nine to five, and not necessarily a measure of output and performance and taking a clear understanding with the team, dividing up the work to be done and having it delivered over any, whatever the period of time is that it's required, but allowing them then the poetic license to live their life outside of work, but still get the job done that needs to be done um, and have 
a better balance, I suppose, of you know, working remotely, um, having the washing hung out on the line or doing whatever yeah. needs to be done um, and still fulfilling their job. Well, in actual fact, when you try to work from nine to five, go from start to finish, that does require a high level of performance to maintain focus that whole time and include your breaks. Um, but it, 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 you do get fatigued and you can get fatigued towards the end of that process. So um, when you allow people the freedom to integrate other activities into their work and get that break that's needed or get, they might be wrestling with a problem that they can't solve. So then they go away and do the washing or they go away and fix something and then they come back and then they're actually effective again. And you notice that when you run events or, you know, when, when we used to run events, it was two o'clock to four o'clock was always the hardest part because they come off lunch and, and your body goes into a cycle where you just want to go and chill. And actually you, you want afternoon siesta. Mm -hmm. And to try and capture, hold people's attention during that two-hour block in the afternoon is really hard because they've gone hell for leather in the morning. They've been active and firing and interested and they've had lunch and they've chilled, relaxed, sat back a bit, and now we're going in the afternoon, we're going to do it again? Whoa, you know? So if you make every day like that and this power through from nine to five, then it's fatiguing. And then add the commute on top of that, then it's ultra fatiguing. So I think actually this integrated lifestyle workflow and, and as long as they honor their obligations, you know, if you set a meeting, attend it, you know, don't drop the ball. If you want to, if you want to cancel it, manage it, you know, so really honor the people you're working with and then honor yourself and get whatever you want to get done in your life. The other thing that we did is we stripped out KPIs. And in fact, I don't want, I don't run to KPIs. I run to strategy. And so the whole company runs to strategy. And it's not what Glenn says should happen, it's what the company agrees should happen. And they're, they're baked into the strategy. So the strategy set the goals, and then we work to the strategy. And when you have leaders that can, that can list a strategy and become the owner of that strategy, they develop it through and work it through, and it's them calling others to account against the strategy. That, I found, is a much nicer way to operate. How, how have you found, then, there seems to be this misnomer of all or nothing floating out there at the moment and a lot of people are really battling with this of it's all work remote or it's all back to the office and there seems to be some yeah some some people making some pretty opinionated uh, messages out there about returning to the office um, and there's been some recent articles from the Commonwealth Bank and the NAB Bank here in Australia mandating a return to the office now I don't know whether they are being hyped up in the media and a little bit of it's being lost in translation or whether there is really a, a true undercurrent of getting people back to the office because they believe that is the way that the best performance is done. Fair enough for frontline workers and people that need to be there physically present to actually do tasks. That's certainly understandable. But you've, you've given us a, a bit of a window into an operation that works remotely. Do you come together in person with your team and if and when you do, what drives that? Is it intentional connection to work on specific components of work or team building rather than stuff that can be done over Zoom? Yeah. What do you do? Okay, so work anywhere has just this, in, in my value set, there's a hidden value, which is also tied to work anywhere, which is also really as equally important as the work anywhere mindset. It's called work where you need to be, mm -hmm. okay? So 
I am very fortunate that as a CEO, I can travel the com- the country in my very advanced four-wheel drive off-road, off-grid caravan. And I've got Starlink to function and I can log in and check in things anywhere I am, which is just such a gift. Now, other people who are in the medical industry, they don't have that luxury. So they're, nest- they're in hospitals, they're healing people, or that's the, that's the model. So therefore, they've got to be at work at, at the prescribed times. So my view is that the adaption is not simply that everyone in the country should work anywhere, but everyone in the country works where they need to be. And you choose your profession and you accept the parameters of the profession that sort of dictate those terms. Um, the whole ethos of coming back to work three days a week and then home two days a week, I kind of, in one sense, it's a rigid structure to say, well, you get that flexibility to do things at home, which then kind of makes things at home work better. Um, but then is working in the office more productive? Well, I've been, I've actually done another little side hustle. It's not a side hustle. It's a side project, which is to go and see co-working spaces around the country and actually go and sit in them and experience them. And I can tell you, I personally hate them. Not the locations. Usually they're in nice locations. They're in fabulous environments. What I don't like about them is that I'm having phone calls that are actually really commercial. I don't want interruptions. And the last thing I want is this common co-working space where this, this guy down the, you know, three cubicles down is having a whale of a time in the chat. But then I'm having this Zoom call with 16 people and trying to lead them through something. And then I've got all this distraction. So this open plan mindset of working is just open distraction working. And if I had to go back to that as, as an employee, I think I would tear my hair out, particularly after actually working in a highly productive zone of home with less distraction. So I personally think that it, under the work where you need to be model, we then need to adapt our entire ethos of our economy and the structures of how we work to work where we need to be. And if it just makes sense, that's str- like for the team collaboration, the velocity of whatever work's getting done to be in the office for three days a week. And that's clear and people believe in that and they've got the belief in that and they think, yeah, that's great. Okay, well, fabulous. But I think we have to be a lot more adaptive in how we think about where we work, where we need to be. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's a really important distinction of work we need to be to get the job done. Correct. Um, rather than all or nothing. That's that, right. There seems to be this polarising view. It's all or nothing. And that's right. Drag people back to the office kicking and screaming. Yeah. And creating a greater social divide. Yeah. My, our team don't need to be in our office. But to address your question, we are actually already now starting to think about, well, we do have an office in Port Melbourne. Um, but now we're thinking about how do we better utilise the space. It's good for training, but it's also good for actually bringing the team together, say, on a monthly basis. To, we, we do a company meeting that li- we literally walk through the whole company, check across all of the, all of the parameters and just make sure that we're going okay. So um, we'll, bring the, we'll bring the team together for that meeting, have a bit of a lunch, and that's a good time to actually just allow breakout collaboration. And if someone wants to spend two hours and do a little short gathering over discussing some new tech thing or AI or new ideas, fabulous. But we'll keep it 
structured to the point of having our company meeting and lunch and then work around that however you like. So yeah, it's important because you do want human contact with your colleagues. Um, but in our industry, we're fortunate enough that the work from home or work anywhere and work where you need to be model really applies where they don't need to be in the office. I think that's the key rather than mandating two or three days in the office to come and sit next to people who are on Zoom calls all day to other people that aren't in the office. Absolutely. Versus intentional, purposeful connection with the team. Yep. So you can brainstorm and do all the things that we should do in person and build trust and relationships to then go back to the work from anywhere environment or work yep. wherever you need to be and continue to have that ongoing trust that's being built from those personal interactions and collaborations. Yeah, and trust is a real key part. One of the other big things about the pandemic is company, big companies didn't have the systems and structures to actually allow the cross the cross pollination of information, corporate information. And there was this whole thing where people had to be set up at home and then had to join the company VPN and then they they'd had to get access to all the different resources and there was no preparation and no planning for that. So uh, that that would have been chaos for those companies. And but still, this is this is a real, really important issue. Companies have, if not hundreds of systems, some of them have thousands of systems, tech systems and software in use and in play, right from apps that are on your phone all the way through to big whatever um, ERPs and so on. The glue is actually the connectedness, the human connectedness. And that's what kind of our work in squiz.com was about or is about, is that if we create the connectedness between people individually and organizations in individually and then connect all the glue between those connections between people and organizations organizations other organizations and the systems that hang off them all then we can open up the gates of information data exchange across a connected ecosystem and at a broad scale or at scale you kind of get to the level of like linkedin and then you go further because linkedin doesn't give any governance structures to organization entities so now we break that out, we break that open and we go, okay, now we have a global platform that allows us to actually have inter-entity information flow and preserve security and trust, which is critical through those connections. Have you seen the breakdown of barriers between people connecting? Um, I've certainly observed it um, with office-to-office -office or inter-office inter communication, state-by-state -state communication, and then also internationally where now it's a lot more normal for someone to hop on a call or video call with someone you know, two or three states away or even um, overseas. Whereas before it was a bit awkward, it was a bit clunky or you just wouldn't do it. Whereas now anyone talks to anyone, you know, obviously within the right structures, um, but there's just a more openness to connect. Yep. Well, if you think about Zoom, right, um, even Microsoft Teams to a certain level is kind of gone another level of this, but you want to allow the collaboration to happen, but full open collaboration can't, isn't possible. And the reason for that is quite simple. We all have boundaries. We have boundaries to our connections and people and organizations that we work with. And so the data exchange and the information sharing is bounded by legal, hmm. legal structures. So um, firstly, the liberation, the cross-border liberation of effectively the internet protocol. Like when the internet protocol was originally created, no one really fully imagined that video conferencing and all of that would be the net outcome uh, because that tech hadn't really developed or didn't exist to harness the TCPIP protocol to do data streaming like that. But it, 
it's I think it's one of the most probably the most important and remarkable innovations that ever came forward to have a a network protocol built pretty much designed and built in the 70s and 80s to then now stand the test of time to bring this level of global connectivity together and allow us to build layers of abstraction through the tools like Zoom and then um, you know Netflix and so on so it bridges then this whole you know geo political barriers really we and maybe even in the future the breakdown of nations as a concept is is an eventual outcome because we now can think and work and collaborate at a holistic level as a global population which is just a fantastic and remarkable outcome but we do need to still have the structures to honor the legal boundaries between our connectedness and that's why I talk about Squiz as being a connected commerce platform because it's allowing it's allowing the information exchange through connected boundaries and preserving those boundaries to occur, which is how we function in the real world. Back to the banks and others mandating return to the office. Hmm. Do you think we'll have any feeling about any other economic factors that might be driving these statements, like commercial real estate vacancies and returns on investment and this whole debate around You've got to come back to the city because the local cafe, you know, they're going out of business. Any feelings or thoughts on, you know, the net effect of that or the people that need to drive to the office and, or to the hospital and go and deliver their work? Obviously, there's going to be a little bit less traffic on the road if people are working remotely. So there's a bit of a, a benefit for those who do have to go in transit. Yep. What are your thoughts on maybe some of those underlying factors? Well, I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of work in smart cities. And I have followed the whole digital built transition as well. And I've been involved in a lot of conferences uh, since 2009. And even in Squiz, we're leading that with smart assets. So I've kind of been across the entire transformation of city, so to speak, as a discussion. Um, we're already starting to see that uh, play out. Now, let's, let's just break open the concept of a city. It's built on a centralized structure because that was the only way to organize people really at, at scale was to bring them into the middle, into offices and buildings so they could collaborate and work on common tasks. Close proximity. Yeah, so we, we kind of basically built cities that were like spider webs. And um, some cities are better at it than others. But the, the challenge was we actually kind of started out with cities as stars. You know, all the focus is to bring all the people in the middle. So the transport network is focused on the center and then bringing them back out again at the end of the day. Um, the spiderweb model is kind of more like London because London, it's now virtually impossible with the size of the population to actually drive across the city. So having the London underground with its, its kind of web structure crisscross everywhere, then people, again, can work where they need to be. But a, a city like Melbourne that kind of has this sort of focal point on the CBD and, and the middle um, was worked quite well under that sort of... Uh, structured regime but now tech is breaking out all the rules so we're now having to start looking at well what does the city of the future actually look like and how does it transition to that and i guess from an asset real estate owner i'd be really frustrated and annoyed that <laughs> my tenants don't want to use my building because they don't need it so that is a real critical problem and if the tenant is stuck on a 10-year or 15-year contract to use or harness that space, mm. then, then the tenant's going to want to drive the use of that space. And the tenant will want to drive the use of that space to get 
to, to do the productivity of their work. So we have this kind of um, tug of war going on because the asset owners want the utilization of the commercial space and the commercial companies want, they're paying for it. So they want to bring them back to work to justify the space. And if they can't justify it, then why do we need the space? So now this is kind of where my work has been uh, involved in another initiative, which is to look at, well, co-working spaces, even though I haven't enjoyed the ones that I've been to, they have been built on a on an annual rental model. So you kind of rent access to the co-working space and then you get a dedicated desk as well in a communal environment and blah, blah, blah. So, but my view is that we are now going to start seeing transient work. Like I want to go from one space to another space, to another space, to another space in one day. And along the way, I want to do a podcast like this in a private space. I want to then go and write some emails in a cafe space. And then I want to go over and catch up with a friend at the beach, walk the dog. And then after that, I want to go back in the afternoon and meet with a client in, a, in another shared space. So this whole shift from uh, anchored to the desk, anchored to the space is now going to go into the smart cities kind of mindset is that will be where you need to be. And the coolest thing is, is that it then eases pressure that was already virtually at breaking point on the public infrastructure. I mean, trains were just in Melbourne, pre-camp pandemic, were packed to the rafters to the point where our team are coming in at West Melbourne going, oh my God, I've just been jammed in like a sardine for the last 45 minutes. So it's freed up all of that public transport infrastructure. It's freed up the roads a little bit, but now we have a lot of crisscrossing going on because people are just working where they want to be or where they need to be. Now, I think that's just going to be a continuous trend. Now, those commercial buildings might have to adapt. They might have to become apartment buildings. Um, they the Companies won't need as much floor space and, and footprint. But then maybe those spaces are then adaptive, transient workspaces that are then shared across organisations. And then we have smart contracts in play to allow people to access what they need and where they need to be. So I think that ultimately it's just going to naturally transition. And unfortunately for some real estate owners, well, they're going to get the raw end of the, the deal for a little while until that transition under or plays out. I think that's definitely an area of concern for the big end of town um, where there's legacy assets that, like you said, are being underutilised, but potentially to the positive side of that, they could go through a transformation period and be repurposed. The existing infrastructure that we've got could be better utilised because the, the movements of people, are, that movement pattern is being flattened out rather than being peaks and troughs yep. through the peak hour period. And yep. we can maximise our public transport systems and road networks and whatnot better yeah. and hopefully divert funding for infrastructure into newer, different ways uh, of, of building the cities of the future, like you said. Well, another major part of this is this whole discussion about sustainability, right? We, the old model is unsustainable. How much carbon is actually polluting the atmosphere while we're driving around clogging up the roads? Like, it's just unsustainable. So... If we want to go and reduce the carbon footprint, we've got to reduce the movement or, and make sure the movement is impactful movement, that it's actually useful movement. Purposeful. It's purposeful. It's the same with aeroplanes. We can't just keep throwing more aeroplanes up in the air if we want to be carbon neutral and sustainable because every aeroplane that's flying around is burning, I don't know, 1,000 litres every six minutes. So um, t 
to offset that, we have to be smarter in how we do move around. And, you know, if, if air travel is mostly leisure and exploration, well, great. Because if commercial air travel is not as necessary as much, fantastic. It just eases the pressure. And on in terms of the cities and um, people being where they need to be, um, uh, we just have to really have this adaptive mindset to allow that to transition. Whereas I think the corporate heads and CEOs and all of that are like going, well, we need to we need visibility and we need people to be answering their our phones exactly the way it should be. It's like, well, then deck out your team with the equipment at home to actually deliver high quality phone services. Because I've had like personal phone calls with people at home, like even NAB, my bank, you know, they're at home and the phone quality is poor and the kids are coming in and knocking on the door. And I love it because that's real. That's human activity. And, but at the same time, there's a lot you can do with tech to improve that experience and have that, have that team member feel supported inside their home or their working environment. Um, I would love to see a softening of that real hardline approach. And in actual fact, I think the workers are now just choosing, well, stick your job, you know, and I've heard a lot of stories around that. Just, well, I don't want to work anyway that way, so I'm out. And, well, how many, how many people can you afford that say I'm out and go off and do other things? And right now in a skills shortage economy, that's not a very easy mandate to put in place i think a lot of people have been weighing up that and like you said voting with their feet um but also at the same time coming into some potential economic uncertainty that might be putting the handbrake on their movements at the moment as well so i think there's a little bit of a uh, uh ebb and flow i suppose equalizer uh, yeah definitely in, in one sense well it, it, the equalizer needed to happen um but i think i think again work where you need to be if people agree that that is the right mode of working and going into an office and working in the office, well, great, do it. Like, that's great, fabulous. But ensure that that is the consensus. I think that's the main thing. Like, d does the workforce agree that this is the smart, smartest way to work? And I think if organisations can provide that liberty to their staff to just to work out what is the best model, then it just becomes a little bit more supported rather than, everyone's just like no rather than a dictatorship yeah like if those office spaces are useful great as long as everyone agrees fantastic well the majority you'll never get everyone absolutely <laughs> can't please everybody all the time and then the ones that don't agree will shift and move and make they'll do their own thing anyway so absolutely yeah i think it'll all work through awesome well glenn look thank you so much for sharing your insights observations and learnings with our audience uh, sure. Are there any other key takeaways that you'd like to add before we wrap up? Well, I think it would be lovely to see more people working anywhere like we are, you know, in caravans and travelling the country. My view of, um, you know, I guess probably the biggest transition for the whole pandemic was this, uh, this sort of cultural need to keep up with the Joneses, mm. to have the big house with the big cars and all the, all the toys in the world. Um, to then reorientating your values. And I'm not saying that everyone should have my values. I just do what works for me. But I think that that whole philosophy of 
you know, earning, working more and earning more and then getting the next big thing will break down a little bit because people have had that opportunity to, you know, with that isolate, that level of isolation, really think what's important for their lives. And maybe it's time with their family and traveling and working is a smart way of doing that as of what you're doing with your family, which I think is a really clever way of doing it, particularly with the school that you've said to me have been very adaptive and supportive for your work anywhere model of, of operating. I think that's a really important message and, and note is it doesn't have to be the way it was always done and there are yeah. other options out there. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a very great big mortgage and car loans and all these other sorts of things. If you look and connect and, and talk to people out there, things can be done differently and they are being done differently. Yeah. But, you know, if you do, if your whole uh, enjoyment is to have your big house and your cars and all that, and that's what you love doing, well, well great, and your values align to that, fantastic. But I think it's really important, as you said, there's lots of options. There's lots of ways to live now and lots of ways to work. And I think that that's just very exciting. Opportunity is the key word. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Glenn. If our listeners would like to hear any more about your company, where would they head to? Well, they can sign up on squiz.com, S-Q-U-I-Z-Z.com. Um, and then they can start harnessing and using the platform for how they want to create their own connected economy. Amazing. Thank you so much, mate. Great. All right, everybody, uh, look, thank you so much for your time. Remember to subscribe to the podcast if you want to hear any more insights, challenges, and stories. We'll be uh, releasing some more episodes soon. And as always, stay connected.